The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Dewey Dovel, and we have the or the privilege of having jake the baptist stone on with us again jake welcome back to the covenant podcast great to be back with y'all so jake it's been a while since you've been on our podcast would you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself yeah it's uh it's great to be back with y'all i uh since the last time that i would have been on the podcast back at the beginning of 20 21 i stepped down from the pastorate that i was serving at in mississippi and in june of last year moved to louisville kentucky to begin studies at the southern baptist theological seminary and so i have been here hard to believe almost a year and a half just wrapped up my third semester here at the seminary i also work on campus at the library and have the privilege of being a member at the reformed baptist church of louisville where one of our pastors, Jim Savastio, was on the podcast with y'all some time back. And it has been a it's been a great experience for me, both being a, a member there and studying here at Southern, um, just for me in this portion of my life. And it's been a good, good experience for me and very thankful to be here. Well, Jake, it's a delight to have you back on today. Uh, you're a dear friend and you have been instrumental in our lives, particularly in shaping our thought about Baptist theology, piety, and practice. So we, we are so grateful to have you here today, brother. Uh, we're also grateful for our discussion today on a, a very important figure in American Baptist history, and uh, you are definitely the guy to have this discussion, that figure being none other than Isaac Backus. So as we look to get our conversation started, perhaps you'd be willing to give us just a biographical sketch of Isaac Backus to get us started for the rest of our time together today. Yeah, so Isaac Backus is really one of the most influential early, what we would say, colonial slash American Baptist. And he was born on January 9th, 1724 in Norwich, Connecticut. And his family was a part of the first congregational church there in Norwich. And so as would be expected, he is sprinkled as an, an infant uh, this is the church that he attends growing up. His father dies in 1740, and so his mother is now a widow with 10 children and a six-week-old infant. But it's very interesting that his mother will become very influenced by the preaching of George Whitfield, and the First Great Awakening really makes an impact on the Bacchus family. And it would be a little bit about a year later after his father's death in 1741 that Bacchus has what he would describe as his experience of saving grace while he's plowing out in the fields. And really his conversion narrative 
and the impact that Whitfield and that preaching has on his mother, uh, they, they become what is known as new lights. And the new lights were those who were in the establishment churches, like the Congregationalists, for example, that really are impacted by the preaching of men like George Whitfield, the First Great Awakening, and this desire for experiential religion of really a theology that is not just shaping one's um, thought process as far as doctrinally having it, uh, in, a, in a sense, you've got it systematized, but also in the heart of changing a person, of knowing this great theology of the doctrines of grace, for example. And so, obviously, coming into this new light perspective, people like Isaac Backus, his mother, and others in New England become in conflict with the establishment, with the, what's known as the Standing Order, with the state church, and Congregationalist ministers were not always very receptive to the ministry of George Whitfield and others, because from Backus' perspective, uh, he's looking at churches across the area, and they're filled with unconverted members, and sometimes unconverted ministers are leading these churches. And so that is obviously, if you're going around and beginning to say that, you know, the pastor of the parish church, he's not regenerate, well, that's going to obviously cause uh, some issues to be brought about. So as, as time develops, what you have is when these standing order state-established churches are not at all receiving the influence of Whitfield, but rejecting it in many ways, that the new lights began to hold separate services. They would have their own gatherings for instruction and, and worship, and that really brought the condemnation of the established order. So for Bacchus in his own life, and but also throughout New England, men and women would kind of leave the established church and begin to form their own congregation, and that they became known as separates. And so Bacchus, along with his mother, one of his uncles, a brother, and later a grandmother, they would join a separate church in Norwich. And then in the year 1746, what becomes a very early issue for Isaac Bacchus in kind of distancing himself further from the established order, uh, he discerns an inward call to ministry. And the separate church uh, discerned that they believed that he, he was gifted, that he had been uh, blessed by the Spirit to have gifts of preaching, and so they licensed him to preach. And he begins an itinerant ministry, going into parts of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, preaching in different places. And he, he was said to be a very powerful preacher to the point that a group of separates in, uh, in Middleborough uh, said that we want you to be our pastor. We want you to be here and help us organize a church. And so in the year 1748, a separate church is formed with Bacchus as their pastor, and he is ordained in April of that year. And so Bacchus already by these different kind of, shall we say, changes in his life, it's already bringing him into conflict with the established order to the point where early in his ministry he refuses to pay the state mandated uh tax that was to support the establishment church to the point that he is threatened with jail if he does not pay it and uh, he was pretty pretty insistent that he wouldn't 
and to the point that it took one of his church members actually to pay the tax on his behalf so that his pastor would not go to prison. So at this point, I meant to say Middleborough is in Massachusetts. And so this is the, the hotbed, really, of this establishment congregationalist order. And so at, at the very beginning, as Bacchus has moved from this congregationalism that is established to the Whitfieldian influence of being a new light, being a separate separatist now, he is moving into this world of really being opposed to the state order of combining the church and the civil together. So that's already we can see marking Bacchus ministry. Well, what's going to be the natural kind of outflow of all this? Well, he was a Pado Baptist, but as all of these things are happening, uh, Bacchus is becoming convinced because of some members within his church are asking questions about what do we do with this notion of infant baptism? So in 1748, he preaches a sermon saying that infant baptism was a mistake, but about a month later, he retracts that. He felt maybe that he had spoke too hastily. But over his own time and his own study, over a few years, in August 22nd, 1751, Bacchus is immersed. He is actually baptized. He becomes convinced of believers' baptism as the way that the New Testament orders baptism. At the beginning, the church tries to maintain a, a stance of open communion. Um, their, their logic for that was is that if they could have friendly relationships with Pado baptists that maybe they would be able to win them to their cause. But after more study, more deliberation in the year 1756, Bacchus became convinced not just of believers' baptism, but closed communion, that it was only communion was to be served only to those who have been properly baptized as believers. And so there in Middleborough, their separate church was dissolved and they reconstituted as a Baptist church. And Bacchus is ordained. Uh, with other Baptist pastors uh, being a part of that service, they are now constituted as a Baptist church. And as a Baptist pastor, it doesn't take very long that Bacchus becomes very influential among the New England Baptists. There's a few things to, to know about him as far as, it, as in his Baptist ministry. He is a confessional Calvinistic Baptist. He stands in the tradition of the Second London Confession. He's very influential uh, in the founding of what was then known as Rhode, the Rhode Island College, which becomes Brown University there in Rhode Island. He is also very much a part of the founding of the Warren Association in 1767. And both of those institutions, Brown University and the Warren Association, are outgrowths of the Philadelphia Baptist Association. And when we're talking about Baptist life in America, the, the Philadelphia Association is really, uh, you know, it's known for, for a reason that the mother association for a purpose, because so much of Baptist life grows out of what's happening there in Philadelphia. The Warren Association becomes very important uh, in the cause of religious liberty and the American Revolution. Uh, they form what is known as the Grievance Committee, and that is in 1769, and Bacchus is the leader of that committee. 
At the beginning, it's they make appeals to King George III. Later, it's to the Massachusetts State Legislature, where they are asking for full religious liberty, the the disestablishing of the state church, the ceasing of the mandatory taxes that have to go to support the clergy of the state church. And it's interesting that um, at the very beginning, at the first Continental Congress that meets in 1774, Isaac Backus, along with James Manning, Manning was the first president of Brown University, um, they are sent to the First Continental Congress to appeal on behalf of Baptists for the disestablishment of the state church. And it's said later that John Adams told them, made a comment, quote, we might as soon expect a change in the solar system as to expect it, that they would give up their disestablishment, uh, give up their establishment. So Adams was very much, you know, saying there's, there's no way that's ever going to happen. But Bacchus, really, this puts him in the center of the controversies that will dominate the politics during this period of, of how do we understand religious toleration, religious liberty, a state church, how is it to be supported, and so forth. So he would remark that during the, the 1770s, Baptists were having to, to fight a two-front war. One was a war against the British for civil liberty, and the other was against the patriotic legislators for religious liberty. And so throughout the late 1770s into the 1780s, Bacchus attends the various uh, constitutional conventions that are held in Massachusetts fighting for the full liberty and for the ending of the state church. He's also a strong Calvinist in the Edwardsian tradition. So he's very much going to be influenced by Jonathan Edwards uh, towards some of the latter part of his ministry. He's concerned with what he sees as growing Arminianism among Baptists in New England, and he goes to takes up his pen and writes against that. He also is sent by the associations in New England down to the South uh, to see the, the revival that's taking place among a group known as the Separate Baptists down there, uh, and really comes back and reports about how God is growing and, and moving among Baptists in the Southern colonies slash states. And it's very interesting that um, Bacchus would have held to a, a form of post-millennialism. And, and really, the end goal of, of his post-millennialism was that everybody would essentially uh, become a, a Baptist. Um, would we all? That, that would be the end result, in a sense, on this earth. But I think maybe he um, don't know if I fully would hold to his eschatological views. We, we might would say tongue-in-cheek that everybody will be a Baptist on the other side of glory, but I don't know if we exactly would say that'll happen here on this earth. Uh, and, and, and lastly, it's really interesting that Bacchus is also a, a historian. Uh, he pins volumes on the history of the Baptist in New England and really has a concern with Baptists knowing uh, their tradition and, and where they've come from. And really, when you when you see his writings on the history of the Baptist you can see how Bacchus very much sees himself in the line that goes back to the American side, to Roger Williams, to John Clark, to Obadiah Holmes, and others. And so he's a very fascinating man. He, he, he writes prolifically. Uh, he is a polemicist, but he is also a pastor and a preacher and a church historian. And that probably was way too much biographical information, but, but there it is. Well, no, we appreciate 
good long, not so much biographical sketches, but biographies on our podcast. Um, with that being said, you alluded to several contributions that that Isaac Backus had throughout his life. Do you care to flesh out any more of those or or add some more major contributions that he he added to the Baptist movement? I think that the most important legacy that Bacchus leaves, if we were to pinpoint it on one thing, would be his work on religious liberty. I mean, he is very much the person in Massachusetts who is appealing to the public to to support the view that Baptists and other dissenters, those who are not a part of the establishment Congregationalist Church, should have you know full freedom, full liberty, full rights. And that there should not be a, a state-supported church. I mean, he really is the leading spokesman for Baptists, not just in Massachusetts, but in New England in general, for full liberty and freedom of conscience. And he does so by getting to the heart of the issue being differences on ecclesiology, you know, who is the church and what is it? And then covenant theology, and specifically, you know, how does God work in the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do we understand the difference between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church? And and all of that is really what crystallizes uh, his views on what we would say political theology. So his political theology is rooted in his ecclesiology and his covenant theology. I think it's fascinating that one of his contemporaries, but there's a big difference in age is John Leland. And of course, Leland is originally from Massachusetts, uh, then goes down to Virginia and serves for a period of time before going back to New England. And Leland remarked about, um, Leland preached for Bacchus, I think the year was 1800, and talked about on their on their first meeting, um, he, he described Bacchus as the venerable Bacchus. And so, you know, he had such a, a respect that that was given to him by so many Baptists um, during this period. I mean, they understood and really, you know, I would say revered him as one of their, their champions. So I, I think his contribution on political theology is, is very significant, but it's important to understand that in light of the other matters, ecclesiology and covenant theology. I, I think too, uh, he's very much an associationalist. I mean, it, there's a sense in which he was a little bit apprehensive about the Warren Association forming because of his background in the Congregationalist movement and seeing how some of the hierarchy worked against the new lights, the separates. But better understanding Baptist Associationalism, once Bacchus and his church joined the Warren Association early on, I mean, he is very much involved in the life of that association. And, and really, I think one of the most remarkable things about their their stance and, and fight for religious liberty is while Bacchus was the spokesman, it really was an associational effort. The grievance committee was appointed by the association, and the association made decisions. The committee gave recommendations, and they never forced it on each local church. They said each local church could decide whether they would adopt these things or not, but it was really a cooperative effort. And I think that you you can really see the importance of that, and, and also that it was a confessional association. I mean, the Warren Association adopted the Second London when it when it formed, and so 
uh, th- there was not a minimalism that existed there. There was a robust confessionalism that that guided those churches in that association, which is the influence of Philadelphia. And then I love that as a as a pastor, he also had a passion for history, that he really wanted to see Baptist history told and preserved. And so all of these things really show a, I would say a man that had a lot of different kind of areas where he was involved in, but chiefly for the for Baptist theology, he's strong on the doctrines of grace, he's strong on associationalism, but he's very strong on his ecclesiology and how that is shaped by his covenant theology, and that all impacts his political theology. Very well said, Jake. Uh, you've, you've made a very, very compelling case that Bacchus was a man who levied sizable influence on the Baptist movement in America. Um, but let's let's zero in on the subject of covenant theology. You've alluded to that in your previous response as being one of the more prominent features of Bacchus's impact. Um, how would you go about describing Bacchus's understanding of covenant theology and and, and why was his theology of the covenant so important in his overarching system of thought? So I think one thing that that we as as Baptists today, and I, and I speak generally, uh, don't understand, or, or or we've we've lost, or we're not aware of the impact that covenant theology had on our Baptist forebears. Bacchus was a Pado Baptist, and when you trace out the history of the early Baptists. So I'm talking on both sides of the Atlantic. We're at 17th century, 18th century. Their moves to Baptist convictions are almost all based upon their shift in covenant theology. That when they had a, I would say, obviously, more biblical understanding of the covenants, they went from paedo-baptism to credo baptism. And that's exactly how it works in the life of Isaac Bacchus. After he becomes a Baptist in 1756, the first tract that he publishes was entitled A Short Description of the Difference Between the Bondwoman and the Free. And it is basically his defense for why he has become a Baptist, why their church um, dissolved and reconstituted along Baptist principles. And he goes to Galatians 4, uh, 22 through 31, the bondwoman symbolizing Hagar and the earthly Jerusalem, the old covenant, and then Sarah, the, the free woman, the heavenly Jerusalem representing the new covenant, the gospel covenant. And he really shows the shortcomings of the covenant theology of the Congregationalist and the Puritans. Uh, this is a work that is his own um, explanation for in his life why he has come to reject the way things have been, the way he was brought up, and, and how the Puritans and Congregationalists had done baptism wrong uh, in his life. And and I think it's quite remarkable that Bacchus stands in this line of these Baptists of his covenant theology being refined and bringing him to the Baptist cause. Now, in this work, the major influence on Bacchus that he cites is John Gill. Um, he quotes Gill at length several times through this piece. And what he's trying to do using Gill is to show the Baptist view on the covenants, that there is a distinct legal covenant that is the old, 
and a gospel covenant, which is the new. And Bacchus joins Gil in seeing how the bondwoman represents the, the Jewish church, Old Testament Israel, and the free woman represents the gospel church, which is the new covenant. And it's it's fascinating that Bacchus essentially uses Gill and says that the New England Puritans made the same mistakes as the old world, the old England, Paedo-Baptists did, and that they failed to see the discontinuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. What they had done was just essentially using circumcision, read all of the Abrahamic covenant right into the new covenant and that's how they get that their 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 view that circumcision is not just infant baptism and so he said that the failure to distinguish between the two covenants was why the pedo baptists in new england specifically the congregationalists there in massachusetts had believed they had the same responsibilities as old testament israel so the blurring of the lines between the two covenants is why those Congregationalists, those those Puritans thought they were justified in persecuting the Baptist, like Roger Williams, you know, forcing him into exile, um, jailing John Clark and, and Obadiah Holmes and John Crandall, and then whipping Holmes, and um, the persecution that came upon Thomas Gold and the early Baptists there in Boston that formed First Baptist Boston, and even in Isaac Bacchus Day, it's still going on. There is still the the, the disruption of services, the the mocking and the persecuting and the scoffing at baptisms and so forth. It was still going on in Bacchus' day because they had failed to get covenant theology right. Now, I want to make something clear. At this point, uh, Isaac Bacchus is not very familiar really with Roger Williams, and so he doesn't quote Williams in this work. But what is interesting is that Bacchus follows the same pattern that Roger Williams did over 100 years before Bacchus writes this. And Roger Williams' work on the bloody tenet of persecution that he writes against John Cotton, uh, Roger Williams follows a very intricate typological scheme to explain his views on the biblical covenants and how the Puritans had blurred the covenant lines and had failed to properly distinguish between the old and the new based on typology. And Isaac Bacchus does essentially the same thing, drawing from Gill, that they had failed to properly take in uh, typology. So here's a few sections from that work. He says this, in short, by the free woman, we may understand the glorious plan of salvation laid in the eternal mind from everlasting, which in time has been made manifest first by gradual discoveries thereof in the Old Testament, and then by Christ actually coming in the flesh and working out salvation, which he began to preach himself, and it was afterwards confirmed unto us by them that heard him, whereby the gospel church was gathered and increased. Now, I don't know, I don't know the answer to this question, or or what I'm about to say. I'm not for sure, but I think it's fascinating. I don't know if by this point Bacchus is familiar with the Second London Confession. But do you notice that statement? He said, first, by gradual discoveries thereof in the Old Testament, which is very similar to chapter seven of the confession, which says by, by further steps, things were progressed and revealed. So I find that fascinating that he he makes that allusion. Then he says, and I'm not going to try to read this, you know, the whole book here, but um, he says here, for example, the promises and threatenings of the old covenant belong to the children 
of the old covenant. And the promises of the new covenant belong only to her children. And then he says here, he says, many others think that baptism is not confined only to saints, but that their natural offspring are also to partake of it. And I find that the main arguments for both are fetched from the constitution of the Old Testament church, holding that to be modeled according to the new covenant. Though here in our context, we are told that this Hagar is Mount Sinai and answereth to Jerusalem that now is and is in bondage with her children, the Jewish church and her legal standing. That church and the gospel church are set as wide apart as the old covenant and then the new. In Hebrews 8, that covenant at Sinai is called old, and God says expressly that the new covenant is not according to that. And then he gets into the the typology. He says, it is abundantly shown in scripture that the Jewish church and the forms and ordinance thereof did shadow forth and typify heavenly things. And he cites Hebrews, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel is being selected out of other nations and being redeemed with almighty power and brought near to God to be his peculiar people and to partake of those ordinances and privileges, which no other nation then enjoyed, did remarkably shadow forth God's spiritual Israel, whom he hath chosen and by almighty grace redeemed. And let's see. And then here's an here's another one. He talks about the, the way that Noah's Ark and how that's that was used at times by by Pado Baptist to see there that that shows that you know Pado Baptism, sprinkling infants is acceptable. He said that which saved them was the ark that Noah built, which was a clear type of Christ. And as the old world was destroyed when Noah entered into the ark, so shall the wicked when the Son of Man cometh for the salvation of his people. Then he says this, this gets to the heart of it. Thus, by jumbling type and antitype together, persons run themselves into a sad dilemma. Whereas if we take them distinct, the case is easy. So just just a sampling, but one of the people that really brought Isaac back is kind of back to life. Uh, was William McLaughlin, who wrote many different works on Bacchus and collected some of his writings together uh, in a very helpful volume. Uh, but one of the things that he says here, and this will be the last that I say on this part, is he gets to a summary of why why does this matter? What's the big deal? And he says, the significance of Bacchus' argument for the Puritan theory of church and state was obvious. If the Abrahamic covenant was null and void, so were all the regulations for a national church and the theocratic state which went with it. Instead of a corporate Christian commonwealth in which the church was responsible for educating the young in the covenant and the magistrates were required to maintain the purity, safety, and support of the churches, New England would now have to adopt an individualistic, voluntaristic commonwealth in which God alone produced conversions and sustained the churches. And so this this view of covenant theology is really at the heart of Bacchus' development into Baptist principles. You've alluded several times and and made connection between covenant theology, then to his ecclesiology, and then out of that, his political theology. So we've you've given us a taste of his covenant theology. Would you mind um, explaining how it affected his ecclesiology in particular? Yes, and so. 
remember that Bacchus writes that first piece in 1756, and he dies in 1806. So that's a very early kind of taste of where where he was at. And of course, throughout his ministry, some of these things get refined. But because because of this writing on the covenants uh, and his understanding of the distinction between the covenants and that there is discontinuity, then that shapes back his understanding of who the church is and what the church is. And so in 1768, he wrote a tract entitled A Fish Caught in His Own Net. And that might sound like a very strange title, but that's because he was answering the Reverend Joseph Fish. So that's why he pins this, A Fish Caught in His Own Net, who was a Congregationalist minister. And Fish was attacking Bacchus uh, and, and his fellow Baptists as those who stirred rebellion because of their views on the covenants and the church. And so in this work, um, Bacchus answers these charges. Now, again, I find it fascinating that in 1768, he's not using Roger Williams at this point. But who he does cite is Gill. Gill is, again, a, a big presence here. But also he draws from Jonathan Edwards. And then one of Bacchus' favorite tools that he has in, 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 in his kind of engaging in these things his, his weaponry is he likes to use congregationalists against congregationalists. That's one of his favorite things to do. And so what he does in this work is he goes back to the Cambridge platform. The Cambridge platform was, was written in the 1640s by congregationalists that came to New England that was to describe how their, their churches were to be governed. And what Bacchus does is he cites that. He cites John Owen. Uh, increased Mather and Jonathan Edwards, and essentially what he says is to his, to his contemporary Congregationalist, you have moved away from your forefathers. Uh, that that your view and your version of Congregationalism does not match what they brought with them, and so he basically says that what we're trying to do as Baptist is really follow the pattern of original Congregationalism that the first settlers of Massachusetts held to, and that the modern ones had abandoned. So listen to some of the statements he makes here. So this is in this is in this work, A Fish Caught in His Own Net, and you see how his view of the covenants is shaping how he sees the church. So he says, quote, The Holy Ghost calls the orders and laws of civil states ordinances of man. And that's from 1 Peter 2.13. But all the rules and orders of divine worship are ordinances of God. And it defiles the earth under its inhabitants when these laws are transgressed and ordinances changed. He says the civil magistrate's work is to promote order and peace among men and their moral behavior towards other. And immoral behavior may be restrained or forcibly punished. But the work of gospel ministers is to labor to open men's eyes and to turn them from darkness into light and from the power of Satan unto God. And as any kind of force tends to shut the eyes rather than open them, therefore Christ's special orders to his first ministers were freely have received, freely give. And so he's really making it clear that it's the, the role of the church and the state are distinguished because the church is, is the ones responsible for preaching the gospel, and those converted are are then to be a part of the church. And when you have blended the covenants, you've blended church and state, 
And so now being a citizen of the state and a member of the church had become the same thing. Now, he makes a point, and he says that, you know, at the beginning, our congregationalist forebears, you know, that they wanted to tr- they wanted to make sure that only the infants of people that were converted, that, that were marks of regeneration, that they could be sprinkled. But over time, and you see this by the by the by Jonathan Edwards ministry, you know, they had been forgotten. You know, that had been that had been lost and it had just been so confounded. And he, he says later, all of these views on the covenants, the distinguishing, he says, quote, that this leads us down to the root of all, namely the matter of a gospel church. We have already seen that Mr. Fish supposes that the Christian church is made up of the same materials that the Jewish church was. But the Cambridge platforms, here we go, he's, he's using congregationalists against themselves, expressly says the matter of a visible church are saints by calling. And then this is where he, he really kind of, I would say, sticks the dagger in. And that the church under the law was national, which since the coming of Christ is only congregational. And he will say, if that's the case, then how can you have a state church? How, it doesn't matter. It is. It doesn't matter. He says in one place, that the Congregationalists came over here fleeing the element. They wanted liberty and freedom. But as soon as they became the power, they they acted exactly like the Church of England did, and then he even alludes to even like Rome. Um, because once they got power, they ought to maintain their power by stamping out any dissent. And the last, and, and last little bit, he says, the confounding of civil and ecclesiastical affairs together has done amazing mischief in the world. This was the worst mistake that our fathers brought with them to this land. And then citing and following the Baptist tradition, that one of the most important texts is John 18, 36, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Bacchus says, therefore, the dignity of his government is maintained not by carnal, but by spiritual weapons. And so you can see that he he really hones in that when you get the covenants wrong, you get the matter of the church wrong, and the Christian church just becomes an, a new version of the Jewish church. So you can see how Bacchus' view of the covenants shapes then his responses to Congregationalists about that, that he's in error. He's saying, no, we're just following the principles biblically and logically that our congregationalist forebears set forth a hundred years ago when they came to this land. Jake, it's been fascinating to hear you discuss Bacchus's covenant theology and his ecclesiology at length up to this point in our discussion. But I was wondering if we could circle the wagons back to one final topic that you've referenced at various points up to this point in our conversation. That's the subject of political theology. Would you be willing to develop some of the key distinctives of Bacchus's political theology for our listeners and and just continue to expound on some of these great subjects that you've already gotten the ball rolling on with regard to Isaac Bacchus? Yes. So Bacchus saw the results of blending church and state together as disastrous upon religious uh, liberty, expression, and worship. That when you blend the covenants together, you will not understand the proper composition of the church. And when you blend them together, then you have a mixed multitude in the churches of the regenerate and the unregenerate. 
And you have the religious decay that was in the land as he saw it. So for him, the distinction of the covenants was critical to understanding the difference between Old Testament Israel and New, the New Testament church. And that is critical for understanding the different spheres between the civil and the ecclesiastical. Basically, what we would say is, is Baptist and all Baptist view of two kingdom theology, that there is a civil state and there's a church state. And, and, and both are ordained by God, but both have different spheres and duties and responsibilities. One holds a carnal sword for the punishing of evildoers and maintaining good. The other carries the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is for the conversion of sinners, the edification of the saints, and the maintaining of purity and discipline within the church. And for Bacchus and Baptist, uh, Pado Baptist blurred those lines. They weren't distinct. And when you blur them, uh, you get a, a lot of bad things. It's how you end up with having Obadiah Holmes beaten or an old England, Benjamin Keach, there in the pillory. And so Bacchus has said the Abrahamic covenant, it is not enforced today. It has been fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, we need to understand how the new covenant is different. Now, I don't want to be on here forever, so I've got to, I'm going to try to move quickly. But there's some very important things to hear from Bacchus on these matters. So kind of the first really um, big track that he writes on religious liberty is in 1773, and it's called An Appeal to the Public for Religious Liberty Against the Oppressions of the Present Day. And just listen to some of the ways that he articulates um, religious liberty. For example, first of all, he begins by, you know, looking at the regulative principle for worship. He says, the forming of the Constitution and appointment of the particular orders and offices of civil government is left to human discretion. And our submission thereto is required in the name of their being the ordinances of men for the Lord's sake. Whereas in ecclesiastical affairs, we are most solemnly warned not to be subject to ordinances after the doctrines and commandments of men. And it is evident that he who is the only worthy object of worship has always claimed it as his sole prerogative to determine by express laws what his worship shall be and who shall minister in it and how they shall be supported. So it's Christ who determines these things, and he has done so in the New Testament. Then um, he uses Cotton Mather against the Congregationalist. And M Mather made a statement in his day, quote, the reforming churches flying from Rome carried some of them more, some of them less, all of them something of Rome with them, especially in that spirit of imposition and persecution which too much cleaved to them. Uh, so Bacchus said, yeah, he was right. That's how, that's how, that's how you have acted. And then we get to, in this work, his first usage, as far as I'm aware of, of Roger Williams. So now by this point, Bacchus is familiar with Williams, and it's really Bacchus who will do, Bacchus and Leland uh, will really retrieve Roger Williams a lot for Baptists in their day. He, he says this, quoting Rod, he says, in reply to which Mr. Williams says, the truth is, the carnal sword is commonly the judge of the conviction or obstinacy of all supposed heretics. Hence, the faithful witnesses of Christ, Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, had not a word to say in the disputations at Oxford. 
Hence, the nonconformists were cried out as obstinate men, abundantly convinced by the writings of Whitgift and others, and so in the conference before King James at Hampton Court, etc. So he's really pulling from Williams and says, look, we, st we stand in the same line as all of those who have been persecuted by the carnal sword. And then, you know, I love it that in this work, too, he says, at the same time, we are far from charging all the evils we complain of uh, upon the whole congregational denomination without distinction. For we believe there are many among them in various stations who are solely grieved at these oppressions. We are willing also to make all the allowance that is reasonable for the influence of old customs, education, and other prejudices in those who have injured their neighbors in these affairs. But is it not is it not high time now to awake and seek for a more thorough reformation? And that's why we can say that Baptists are the thorough reformers. Two more quotes from this. He says, and we freely confess, let me go back up, but in religion, each one has an equal right to judge for himself. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done. And, and not what any earthly representative hath done for him. And we freely confess that we can find no more warrant from divine truth for any people on earth to constitute any men their representative to make laws to impose religious taxes than they have to appoint Peter or the Virgin Mary to represent them before the throne above. Uh, and, and so you can see Bacchus has some strong words for the, the Congregationalist order, the state order. And finally, in this work, he says, you know, I think a very powerful statement. He said, church and state are separate. When they are, the effects are happy. And they do not at all interfere with each other. But where they have been confounded together, uh, no tongue nor pen can fully describe the mischiefs uh, that have ensued. So that's in 1773. Um, for time's sake, I, I would encourage people to check out uh, in 1779. Um, he, he writes, policy as well as honesty forbids the use of secular force in religious affairs. And, and I'll just read one quote from that that gets to the heart uh, of this theme. We can see you just the distinguishing between the covenants, distinguishes between the two spheres. He says, men have three things to be concerned for, namely soul, body, and estate. The two latter belong to the magistrate's jurisdiction. The other does not. There is a learned profession suited to each of these interests. Yet every man and every woman have long been allowed that liberty about physicians and lawyers that has been denied them about soul guides. And can my dear countrymen any longer suffer officers to do that uh, do that out of their province, which they dare not do in it? So he's very basically he's making it clear that there is a distinguishing between the civil and the ecclesiastical. Now, I, I want to answer something because somebody may be listening to this and, and they're going to say, well, you know, but Bacchus in the 1780s, you know, he agreed with a statement that was originally put as a condition of office holding in Massachusetts, which said, I believe that Christian religion and have a firm persuasion of it, that legislators had to affirm that. Does that mean that he was blurring the lines? And of course, when in doubt, we read Dr. Tom Nettles. And Dr. Nettles said this, 
And, and I would also say that uh, Stanley Grins, who did his dissertation on Isaac Bacchus, says the same thing. Bacchus, however, did, and I'm reading Dr. Nettles here, Bacchus, however, did not consent to that power in the state. He merely asserts the vow for the sake of arguing that if they really believe Christianity is true, they'll believe what? That Christ alone is head of the church and none can make Christians but he. In the same way, he turns the phrase in the Constitution that the legislature should make, quote, suitable provision, end quote, for Christian teachers in a way to say that only local churches, therefore, should support ministers and that only by voluntary offering, since only such provision is suitable in gospel terms. So he's basically using their own language against them. What did, what did, what did Bacchus believe? Well, in 1779, he wrote himself a draft of a Bill of Rights that the Massachusetts State Convention should adopt in their Constitution. And here are two points, and, and I think that you can very much see where Bacchus stood. Number one, all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, among which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Number two, as God is the only worthy object of all religious worship, and nothing can be true religion but a voluntary obedience unto his revealed will, of which each rational soul has an equal right to judge for itself, every person has an unalienable right to act in all religious affairs according to the full persuasion of his own mind, where others are not injured thereby. And civil rulers are so far from having any right to empower any person or persons to judge for others in such affairs and to enforce their judgments with the sword that their power ought to be exerted to protect all persons and societies within their jurisdiction from being injured or interrupted in the free enjoyment of this right under any pretense whatsoever. Bacchus will join Roger Williams in saying that that even extends to the papist, uh, that Roman Catholics have that right. And so what, what I would just say, and this is just a, a, a small sampling, but I, but I know some, some men, and, and, I, and I don't want to judge their motivations. I think they're trying to be faithful. But I think it's a, a total error to try to use this, this new term magisterial Baptist and apply to Isaac Bacchus, let, let alone most everybody in the Baptist tradition. But if I would just take Bacchus here and, and reading these portions— these are long quotes. I'm not trying to cherry pick one sentence out of context. I, I think it would be very hard to apply the term magisterial uh, in any way to how Isaac Bacchus saw the role of the state and the church. And um, if I read too oh. much, I'm going to blame Dr. Nettles because I've been in his Baptist history class and he's read lengthy portions from the primary sources. And I, mm -hmm. and I know this is a podcast. But it is important that it's not just my interpretation of Bacchus, mm -hmm. it's what Bacchus himself said. Amen. Amen. With all of that being said concerning Isaac Bacchus's covenant theology, as and then as it pours forth into his ecclesiology and then his political theology, where are some places today that we continue to see the influence of Isaac Bacchus? I think that really in many ways, 
how the United States of America developed its view of the separation of church and state, religious liberty, freedom of worship. I mean, the, this is due to, to we hear it in Bacchus writings. Uh, his contemporary John Leland in Virginia is very important with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. And, and I would say in many ways, the you know, there's a reason why in 1920, on the footsteps of the U.S. Capitol, George W. Truett gave a famous address on Baptist and religious liberty. And that really um, the Baptist cause for religious liberty becomes one of our greatest contributions to the civil state in America. And, and part of that is due to the influence of Bacchus. Now, I think there's something very, you know, I want to make um, clear is that Bacchus and Leland would have had some disagreements themselves. For example, Bacchus had no issues with the state uh, having Sabbath laws. Um, he was not opposed to the state using funds to print Bibles, the Westminster Catechism being used in, in a public school setting to teach. Leland would have would have opposed those things. And I think Leland might have been more consistent as far as following the logic. But I think both of those men, while they might have had a difference on application, as far as the foundation for their beliefs, um, were very much similar. And I find it fascinating that Bacchus would have been aware of Leland's views and had Leland preach for him. And so even though they might have had some differences as far as the application of the principles in certain places, um, that was a minority difference. That was a small difference. They held a lot in common. And I think it's a good reminder that as Baptists, and, and you know, I'd say as Christians in general, there can be places on these things that we can disagree with on applications, and that's no reason to disfellowship or, or you know, or in a sense, excommunicate. Uh, it's just a difference of opinion and application, but the foundation uh, that must be we, we must hold that together. And I, and I think you see that in Bacchus and Leland, and they really are two champions that help fashion and shape the American understanding that, that I would argue be, is in many ways becomes a, it was a Baptist understanding of this distinction between the two. It's not a retreat. I'll make some clear. It's not a retreat from the public square. It's not in any way saying we we don't comment on issues of morality and virtue and that we're totally silent as far as what political leaders are doing. But it's an understanding of where each thing has its place and being being guarded that we don't confound the two. Jake, you are the, um, the go to resource in many cases, at least on uh, social media these days, for Baptist reading materials. You mentioned that you are currently serving in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Library, and uh, I think it's fitting that we, as we draw near to the end of our conversation today, I think it's fitting that we uh, just ask for your insights on what resources you would recommend listeners in our audience today to learn more about Isaac Bacchus, and given your exposure to him, where would you look for those to first get acquainted with Bacchus? And for those who have some familiarity, resources they could turn to as well. Yeah, so I want to I want to add one thing really quick too. We 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 need to retrieve Bacchus because as I've tried to lay out, Bacchus is important for us, not 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 just with political theology, but but why we believe what we believe about political theology. And one thing that I've appreciated in taking a class with Dr. Nettles this semester 
he's talked about religious liberty and so forth, and he said, we as Baptists, that we've got to recover our theological defense of it. It's been so long here that we've kind of maybe just sometimes drift to the pragmatic. We need to know our theological foundations. And a man like Bacchus is critical for that because it's connected to ecclesiology. It's connected to covenant theology. It goes back to regenerate church membership. All of those things are tied. And, and I would say if Isaac Bacchus were alive today, I think he would be telling us, look, we're not, we're not, we don't need to be consumed with trying to pass laws to create a quote unquote Christian state. And somehow that's going to make everything better. If we're going to really see true Christianity in our land, it's going to be because Bacchus, the preacher, Bacchus, the pastor, the means of grace, the proclamation of Christ alone, the glories of the new covenant that we are forgiven our sins because of the work of Christ. That would be what Bacchus would emphasize. And if you want to see change, that's where it begins. Not in D.C., but in the church houses where Christ is proclaimed. So having gotten my little sermonette in there, here's where you should go. If you want to read about Bacchus, I'll put it this way. If you want to get to know Bacchus and then read Bacchus, it, it can be hard to find. But do what you can and, you know, maybe skip a couple of meals or skip, you know, buying some clothes. And you need to get Isaac Bacchus on church, state, and Calvinism, edited by William McLaughlin. It is a collection of pamphlets in his writings from 1754 to 1789. McLaughlin gives a good introduction that gives you some of the biography and the theological and historical context for Bacchus. Um, I, I don't agree with some of his interpretations in some places. Um, McLaughlin is, uh, shall we say, not a Calvinist himself. So some of his uh, barbs towards Calvinism, they come out in places. So you have to ignore that. But he has a total of 12 pamphlets. He has a couple of appendixes. These are some of uh, Bacchus's drafts that I read from earlier. That He has a, a whole... Um, section on all of the published works of Isaac Bacchus. And if you do some hunting on the internet, uh, you can find some places that have scanned some of these different works um, that you can, you know, that you can find. Then if some more works on Bacchus, I mean, McLaughlin wrote uh, a, a, a book entitled um, Isaac Bacchus, Pietist, Calvinist, Baptist, um, if you can get a hold of Stanley Grins, who wrote his dissertation on Isaac Bacchus, that is a great um, work. I, I don't agree with some of his applications at the end, but as far as getting a handle on who influenced Bacchus, it is really helpful. You get to see how Bacchus used Roger Williams and, and others. Also, if you can try to get a hold um, back to Isaac Bacchus in the American Pietistic Tradition, that's the book Mike McLaughlin wrote. If you can get um, Bacchus's history of New England, with particular reference to the denomination of Christians called Baptist, it's a great historical work, and and also you kind of see, you know, Bacchus's theology comes out in that as well. Last recommendation I'll give: um, this is in the 1850s, but Alva Hovey, who becomes very, who's very influential among Northern Baptists, he wrote a memoir of the life and times of the Reverend Isaac Bacchus. And really, um, there, there's work to be done on Bacchus. Um, if you can't tell by listening to this podcast, I kind of have a little bit of a passion for this man and, and his views. And and Lord willing, even though it's a few years down the line, I, I would definitely love to give um, 
my attention and my devotion in, in doctoral work to Isaac Backus and some of these questions. Jake, we we appreciate the passion that you have for this this man and our theological tradition and our heritage as Baptists, especially those of us who are in America. We've we've profited from his labor very much. But with that being said, do you have any final encouragement for our audience in light of the discussion that we've had today? Yeah, number one, read Bacchus. Number two, with all that being said, we want to be careful that that we don't believe that somehow the life of Isaac Bacchus was the glory era of the Baptist, and that that is the, the period, if we could just get back to that time. Number, first of all, it was a very hard time for them. Um, it, it was not very easy. But also, look, we, we all are aware that, that Boston, Massachusetts in 1776 is not Boston, Massachusetts today. And so I, I want to always say it's not as if we're trying um, to reclaim some golden age. We face problems in a sense that they didn't face. However, there are things that are common. Uh, they lived in a fallen world, just as we do. And we are having to, again, be able to defend why religious liberty and freedom of worship and so forth is our right, why it's our right. And that's going to require not just political persuasion, but it's going to require theological precision. And I think that's why we can learn from these men. And, and we apply principles to our modern context. But I, I would also encourage my Baptist brothers and sisters that sometimes I see some of us kind of parroting and saying things that fit within a state church tradition. That is Baptist, it may sound good in the short term, but long term, it's not what we believe. And we need to be careful not just to give answers or solutions that we think will solve things immediately, but to really think through these things. For example, let's say that we get some kind of established order of Christianity here in America. Let's just use that as a hypothetical. Well, what makes you so sure that the magistrate that's going to be in charge believes like you do? Um, and, and so that it's all contingent on that person in power uh, being on your side. And, and that's not that's not what Baptists have advocated. You know, we, we don't want the state, uh, in a sense, supporting us and, and helping us. We want the state to leave us alone. And we want the state to respect us and let us carry forth the mandate we've been given by the king. And I think men like Isaac Backus really help us think through some very complex, complicated issues, but it will serve us well in the generations to come if we start thinking through these things biblically, theologically, and historically. And we have a rich tradition as Baptists to draw from. Amen. Jake, it's been a joy to discuss all things related to Isaac Backus with you today. And, uh, I know it goes without saying for Jimmy and I both, your dear friend, we have no doubt that God's going to continue to use you mightily in your collective ministry endeavors. And we really hope that God gives you the opportunity to do some PhD work on Isaac Backus. I think it would be such a blessing to the church. But uh, in the meantime, keep serving the Lord faithfully, brother. We're so grateful to have you in our lives. And thank you again for coming on the show today. Enjoyed it much. Thankful for y'all.
Yes, sir. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. We hope you found today's discussion enriching and edifying. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.